Exodus 28, verses 1 through 5 to begin. Then bring near to you, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. If you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Remember now, Moses is in the cloud, as it said. He's gone back up the mountain with Joshua. Joshua has remained at a distance. Moses has gone up into the cloud to the presence of the Lord. And he's receiving blueprints for worship from the Lord. Last week we saw the tabernacle itself, which is the tent where they would worship, the sanctuary, and most of the pieces, the furnishings of the tabernacle, most importantly, the Ark of the Covenant. And these next two chapters concern the priesthood, their garments, the ceremony of their ordination, and the daily routine of their work. Leviticus, of course, will go into great detail concerning the priesthood and everything that they do. But Exodus gets us started, and everything that Leviticus and Numbers and so on talks about is in reference to this passage here, so it's important that we, we know this. And we see that God chooses Aaron, Moses' older brother, to be the high priest. And this is going to be an inherited position for Aaron and his sons. And right now he has these four, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And they will be, their, their family will be priests, and the line of succession, the firstborn sons, will be the high priest. And the first thing the Lord tells him to do is to make garments. Mostly this is going to discuss the garments for the high priest, but it's going to briefly mention for the other priests as well. And it says for two reasons they were to be made for glory and for beauty. So for glory, this is not just the glory of the Lord. This is more to, to lend an air of authority, to lend an air of holiness and specialness to what these men were doing and who they were, and also for beauty. We talked about this last time. God wanted the sanctuary to be beautiful. Everything was to be done skillfully. Everything was to be done by master craftsmen, and that includes the garments that they were to wear. And these were to be made out of the contributions from the congregation that we discussed previously, most notably the fine linen, also the red, purple, and scarlet threads and, and material that they could use to, to make garments. And of course, they're going to use gold as well, if you're familiar with what this looked like. And there is a wealth of intentional symbolism for the garments of the high priest. You know, sometimes you can hear a Bible study and somebody will tell you this represents this and this symbolizes that. And after a while you go, all right, are we just making this up or is this real? But the Lord will actually... Tell us here, why this? Why this stone? Why this thing here? And he's going to explain what it means. And it's also, the priesthood itself, a major symbol that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 
And that itself is not something I've made up either. The book of Hebrews spends a good two or three chapters explaining how Jesus is a better priest than the priesthood of the Old Testament. And it uses a, a lot of Old Testament scripture. It uses a lot of references to the gospel. So I'm going to read from Hebrews an awful lot tonight. I'm going to start by reading Hebrews 6, verses 19 through 20, where it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And we just talked about the tabernacle. We know what that inner place behind the curtain is. We're talking about the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. We have a hope that's gone even into that place where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So if he's a forerunner, that means you're going to end up behind the veil too. Isn't that wonderful? Having become, it says in verse 20, a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he tells us right there, Jesus Christ has provided a way into God's presence using tabernacle symbolism and imagery, and it calls him a high priest but he says he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going into this because we've talked about it before, and also it's fairly easy to grasp. Genesis 14 tells a story where there was a man named Melchizedek who came to Abraham and blessed him after Abraham had won a military victory, and Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. So, this is a remarkable thing. Abraham was a great man. He was chosen of God. And here he is giving a contribution to this man. And he's being blessed by him. And we never see him before or after that. And Psalm 110 says that the, the son of David, the son of the Lord, is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now the kings of Israel were not to be priests the kings came from the line of Judah. The priests come from the line of Levi and specifically from Aaron. So the only king that tried to blend those two roles was Uzziah and the Lord struck him with leprosy for it. But there's a prophecy in Psalm 110 that there would be a son of David, whom we know to be Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who would fulfill the role of king and priest. And he said, you'll be a, a priest like Melchizedek, kind of coming out, out of nowhere. We don't know where he came from, but he functioned as a priest of the Lord. And that's, that's who Jesus is. And Jesus, by virtue, Hebrews will tell us, of his own self, right? The priests in the temple and the tabernacle were permitted to be priests because they were descended from Aaron. Jesus is able to be a priest because of who he is on his own, not because of who he came from, but because he has that imperishable life, it says. It is his own righteousness, his own sacrifice, his own blood that has taken him into a heavenly holy place to make atonement for our sins. So as we learn about these priests, we learn about him because the New Testament tells us all of that was the Lord pointing to the one who was going to come, the only Mediator. That's what a priest was. He kind of stands in the gap between God and man, between earth and heaven. And 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's, that's Jesus Christ. So as we talk about making these garments, we're going to talk about what they looked like and what they symbolized. And we're also going to see from a lot of the, the really very neat things it says in this chapter, we'll learn some things, be reminded of some things about Jesus as well. So let's start in verse 6 now and go down to verse 14. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. 
And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it and be of one piece with it, of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. This is another one of those passages that we might tend to skip over, but it's important for us to know what, what it says so that some of these other passages make sense, and also because the Lord saw fit to include it in His Word, so we ought to know what it is. The first garment is what we're making. The garments of the high priest was to be the ephod. And this is a transliteration of the Hebrew word, ephod. And we're not exactly sure how to translate that, which is why we just translated ephod. You're going to see this word quite a bit. And in fact, the only description we have of one anywhere is right here. We're going to see in Judges twice that there's going to be an ephod at a false place of worship. That unfortunately Gideon will set up a golden ephod that the people will come and worship and that there's going to be a, another man later in Judges 17 and 18 who will set up his own shrine and he has, makes his own ephod for people to come and worship. And David will wear one at some point. And, and, and it seems to be a kind of like a smock or an apron, although it's much fancier than that, but this helps me understand it. It had a front and a back piece. We can see that they were connected at the shoulders and that there was a belt to tie it tight. So this is not like a shirt that you would pull over. It's not a robe that would hang down. This is a specific, a specific religious garment. And it's called an ephod, and, and that's the word that we use. And this was to be made with the same thread colors of the tabernacle itself. Do you remember this? The blue and the scarlet and the purple yarn were to be used in the design of the tabernacle, of the, of the veil of the tabernacle. And so the priest was to wear this that would match that. And so this is very intentional that he's part of what's going on there, that whoever wears that ephod is participating in what happens in that holy place. And the shoulder pieces were to, were to join the front and the back together, and each one was to have an onyx stone on it. An onyx is a black gem. It's a valuable gemstone, but it is black. And they were to engrave the six names of the tribes on either one, so 12 total. So you'd begin with Reuben, and you'd go all the way down to Benjamin, have six on each shoulder, and you would be secured with gold filigree. Gold filigree is woven gold. So they would take gold and actually weave it into the fabric, and it would, of course, be much more secure than any kind of cloth or string to hold the stones in place. And that there were to be golden chains and rings that hung from that. And we'll see in a minute what those were for. And he says that by wearing this ephod, the purpose of it was for the priest to bear the names of the children of Israel on his shoulders. It's a really powerful picture, isn't it? Symbolically, he's representing the whole nation when he goes into the presence of the Lord. And that really is the definition of a priest, one who represents men to God and one who represents God to men. 
So this is the, the most important piece that the, the ephod would be placed over the, the priest's shoulders. And there's going to be a time where a priest escapes from a, a massacre that Saul initiates at the tabernacle. And it says he escaped with the ephod. So when they were slaughtering priests at the tabernacle, the one priest who got away, the one thing he thought to grab was the ephod because it was that important. All right. So then if Jesus is our high priest, how does he fulfill this role for us as mediator? Well, I think this is obvious. Jesus bore the responsibility for all mankind upon his shoulders, didn't he? He identified with us by his incarnation. Just as the priest would put on that ephod that would have the names of the people on it, Jesus himself took on flesh in a much more meaningful sense than a garment that you can take on and remove. But the Son of God became a man. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I was having a discussion with one of my former students today over, over text, and he was having trouble grasping some things. And I, I said, this is because Jesus became a man. He didn't just look like a man. He didn't take on the appearance of a man. He took on the nature of humanity. So taking on our names in a much more meaningful sense. Philippians 2 verses 6 and 7 say that Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And when we have equality, we want to hold on to that as tightly as possible, don't we? If we're equal with something good, like, I'm not letting that go. But he says he didn't even see equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do instead? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He just used the form of God. Now he uses form of servant. So whatever Jesus was as God, he became as man. Isn't that fascinating? Being born in the likeness of men. Jesus took humanity upon himself. And he bears it still to this day. He did not take flesh off and on like a garment. No, he became a man. We call that the hypostatic union, that he is 100% God and 100% man, entirely unique in all of existence. And we see that and we think, oh man, that's a, that's a rough thing. Would you want to become so much lesser forever? For somebody else. Now, of course, it led to greater glory, but we mustn't minimize the humiliation that it was for Jesus to be born in that stable and be laid into a manger and to grow up like everybody else. I mean, if Jesus had had a miserable childhood, we almost would have said, oh, isn't that, can't you see how his whole life was, was miserable and he took that for us? You know what? Jesus was just like everybody else. The God of the universe, the one that created it, was just like everybody else. They couldn't even believe that he was the Messiah because they knew so much about him. Yeah, you get, this, he's got to be crazy. This is Mary's kid. This is the carpenter's son. But it was no shame for him because in it, he was bearing the greatest burden that nobody could bear. We call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because God did not remain distant, but came near to us. He took us upon his shoulders. Just as the priest would carry the responsibility of Israel into God's presence, so Jesus carries the responsibility of man in his body, identifying with us for our own sake. When Jesus stands before God, he stands there as one of us, representing us to his Father. Isn't that remarkable? It's amazing that Jesus, the man, is also Jesus, the Son of God. We'll never get over thinking about that. 
But this is what the priest would do. He would carry the people on his shoulders, so to speak, into the presence of the Lord. That's the ephod. Now let's look at verse 15, and we'll go down to verse 30. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it. Gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span in its length and a span in its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. The second row, an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. And the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breastpiece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breastpiece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breastpiece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edge of the breastpiece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breastpiece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at its seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And they shall bind the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breast piece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. This is the most brilliant and detailed piece that the priest was to wear. This is called the breast piece of judgment. And that word for judgment is, is not like the end of the world. It's, it's like decision. It's in making good and sound judgment before God. So this was like the ephod in color. So the cloth piece would have been woven in a similar style. And it says it was about a span long. A span is like the span of a hand. And it was approximately nine inches or so. That way long and that way wide. And it would have been doubled, which means it would have been folded and sat across the chest. And it was to have 12 gems set in it in gold filigree. So three across and then four down. And it was to have two gold chains connected by rings that would go up to the shoulder settings on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. And then it would have two at the bottom and they would go around the body and there would be a blue cord that would hold them in place so as not to damage the gold. So the idea was you put the ephod on, the breast piece is attached to that and it would lay flush against so that way it wasn't swinging around and wasn't getting knocked about. Now, these 12 gemstones are notoriously difficult to identify, to know exactly what gems he was talking about when he uses these old Hebrew words, uh, especially because a lot of these gems can have different colors. So knowing what they looked like was a little difficult, but the, what they meant is, is sure. So uh, I'll, we'll take a look at what these are and what they probably would have looked like. The sardius was a red stone, similar to a carnelian, so not as, not as bright as a ruby, but a red stone. The topaz, uh, 
Probably would have been of an amber color. There are other kinds of topaz that you can find, but the most common is kind of an amber or straw colored gem. Carbuncle is another reddish, like a reddish brown color. We think we all know what an emerald was. Uh, some people have speculated that this would have been like a turquoise color instead of the straight green because some of these words, as, as we said, are hard to identify. Sapphire is pretty easy. It's a brilliant blue. Diamond is easy as well. Clearest and brightest. Maybe not quite as shiny and clear as the ones we have because we, of course, have the technology to cut them so fine and with so many facets, but it still would have been beautiful. The jacinth is a deep orange color. It can be red as well, but most likely a, a deep orange. Agate also would have been like a brown color, maybe even getting over into orange. And amethyst is a, is a brilliant purple, as I'm sure you know. A barrel stone was a light green, or it could even be a yellow, depending on the gem itself. That's a barrel. Onyx is another certain one. That's deep black. And a jasper is, is a mottled brown color, and, and jasper can actually have a range of shades. So difficult to know exactly what it would have looked like, but I think you get the idea this would have been brilliant and beautiful and extremely valuable. And if you want to have some fun, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this right now, but there, there's a couple passages in Scripture that make reference to these gems in the breast piece, breast piece of the high priest. One of them is in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, when it describes the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And that's the one that has the pearly gates, and you're familiar with that. But it also has 12 foundation stones. Each one had a name of one of the apostles on it. And each one of those foundation stones is the same gems that we find here on the, the high priest's breastpiece. So that's a pretty cool thing. And, and there's 12 gates, one gate for each of the tribes of Israel, 12 foundation stones, one for each of the apostles, the Jews and the Gentiles brought together. And... Uh, you can even see the foreshadowing of the end of the world here in a good sense on the, on the priest's body as he wore this. Also, if you want to look in Ezekiel 28, 14, a little less positive, when it's written to the king of Tyre, but this is traditionally and I think fairly understood as an oblique reference to Satan and the fall of the devil. And it describes how you were the exalted cherub in the land of Eden. And it says, your covering was and it lists all these 12 gemstones again. So there are some that have then concluded that by wearing these, these 12 stones, this would have been a, a reference to the Garden of Eden or a, a memory of the presence of the Lord and what it was like uh, and what Satan gave up. So I'm sure Satan was rather angry every time he saw that priest walking by because this priest is now holding on to what he had. And this is why uh, many believe that Satan would have had some kind of religious role um, but of course, that's, that's far from certain, I think. But So Revelation 21 and Ezekiel 28, it lists these big, long lists of gems, and they are more or less parallel to these 12 here. So that's worth thinking about on your own time. Now, these would have been set in that gold again, so they would not have been moved. They were set in the filigree. But because this thing was folded, within it were to go these two strange words, the Urim and the Thummim. These are plural words in Hebrew. Anytime you have a masculine word in Hebrew that's plural, it ends with I-M or im. So urim and thumim. This means literally the lights and the perfections. And we quite frankly don't know what these are. We know that the urim and thumim were used to determine the will of God. 
especially in Ezra and Nehemiah, it says that they weren't going to let certain Levites serve because they weren't sure where they belonged as far as the tribe was concerned. So they said they would wait until they had the Urim and the Thummim. When Saul is having that battle and Jonathan eats the honey, do you remember this story? And they're trying to find out who sinned. He says, if it's me and Jonathan, then give Urim. And if it's everybody else, give Thummim. So a lot of ideas here. Some people have speculated that since this was a pouch, the priest essentially reached in, pulled one out without looking, and whichever one he pulled out was kind of yes or no. Uh, this could have been used to cast lots. There are some that have more supernatural ideas that maybe the Lord would have caused one of them to glow. I've heard that before. Quite frankly, just don't have that in Scripture. It doesn't say. It just says that they're the lights and the perfection. So that, that at least is why it's called the breast piece of judgment, because the way that the priest would have made divine decisions was with these two probably gemstones of some kind. Maybe one was black and one was white uh, or something like that. So maybe do a, a word study on those and, and see if you can't come up with a, with a good biblical idea. In any case, it represented judgment and the 12 tribes over the heart of the high priest. It symbolized the people of God seeking God's wisdom and judgment in his presence. Each stone would have had one of the 12 tribes engraved on it. Likewise, our high priest has not only come down to bear our nature, but to carry us into the presence of God. The priest carried them in. We receive the wisdom and the judgment of God through our Lord Jesus. Ephesians 2 tells us that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You've been raised up with Christ. He's not just come down to us and then gone back to heaven. He's taken us with him. At his ascension, Jesus returned to heaven. And when we die, the Bible says to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Not only that, because it's the breast piece of judgment, our judgment is even better. Because we're not looking for justice. We get to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. Because the judgment was poured out on Jesus at the cross. And now the only judgment that is left for those who have faith is grace and love. So Christ bears our humanity but he also bears us thereby into heaven. And we also know that he's going to return and he's going to take us back to be with him forever. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. So we are now spiritually in God's presence. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, but Jesus says, don't worry, I'm coming back and I'm going to take you to be with me forever in my father's house. And then when I return to judge the world, you're coming with me. It's wonderful that Jesus has brought us together by his blood. Well, let's keep going. These next ones are, are much faster. So the, the ephod and the breast pieces are by far the most brilliant and beautiful pieces of the, of the priest's garments. And let's keep going to verse 31 now. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. So this is, it says robe of the ephod. This is a different garment. This would have been worn under the ephod. This is the robe. All of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. So this is one piece. This was not many pieces sewn together. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. 
a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out so that he does not die. So this is the first full garment. The other two were essentially decorative. This one is much more functional, though it's still beautiful. This was a single piece of cloth. This was blue. And they would have had pomegranates sewed into the hem at the bottom. Pomegranates were very often used in the, the decoration of the temple and also of the tabernacle. As far as I can tell, a pomegranate was a symbol of, of joy and luxury. It was, it was a, a very sweet thing to be eaten at this time. And you see a lot of references to pomegranates in the Song of Solomon, for example, talking about joy and, and, and that sort of thing. So... That's probably why the pomegranates are there. And in between each one going all around, there were bells. So you have a, a pomegranate perhaps hanging down, and then there would have been a bell in between. So as the priest walked, you could hear him coming. You could hear the bells. You could hear him walking around. And it also says, as he goes into the holy place, so that he will not be struck dead. So you've heard this before that there would be priests that went into the Lord's presence that God would strike dead. And he says, you, when you hear him moving around in the Holy of Holies, you know that he's okay because the bells are ringing. And if ever you hear the bells stop or collapse, you know something's up and you got to get him out of there. And so traditionally they would tie a rope to the ankle of the high priest in case they needed to drag him out of there. That's the robe. So there would have been the, the big blue robe, then the ephod, which was skillfully woven with all the different colors that have gone over that, and the breastpiece would have been attached. Verse 36, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fashion it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall be regularly on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. So he does not really detail what the turban was to look like, except that it was to be of linen. The older translation said a mitre, which is similar to what bishops and things wear, but it probably would have not have been that, that tall. It probably would have been much more like what a turban normally looks like. But it would have had the gold plate that went around the front attached with that blue cord. This would have helped to hold the shape of the turban, obviously. It also would have made it a sort of crown. Later it will refer to the diadem that the priest would wear or the crown that the priest would wear. And the gold plate was to be inscribed and say, Kodesh la Adonai, holy to the Lord. And it represented the priest's consecration that he himself was separated as holy unto the Lord, which makes you realize how awful it was that men like Caiaphas and Annas in the New Testament were wearing this. They were the ones that wanted Jesus crucified and they're wearing this turban that says holy to the Lord when they had just crucified the Holy One himself. But it also made him the sin bearer in a sense. He was not being punished, but as he offered sacrifices by being that holy one, it says he would bear the guilt. He would be the one that was authorized and ordained to make sacrifice and atonement for the guilt of the people when he made those sacrifices in the temple. Verse 39, you shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen and you shall make a turban of fine linen. There you go. And you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. So less detail here. Uh, this is the coat, which is, I, it's not a great, I think, translation in, in the English here because we think of a coat as an outer garment. This would have actually been an, an inner or an undergarment uh, that would have gone beneath the blue robe. 
And it says it was to be in checkered work. This is what the newer translations have. This is the Hebrew word shavats. And it, it can basically mean embroidery or a certain kind of weaving. The idea was that e- even this thing, which is beneath it all, and you're not going to see it very much, needed to be done well. and needed, uh, needed to be embroidered with some skill and with some beauty. It had patterns and it had designs on it. And there was also to be a sash, which would have been, of course, tied around the waist to hold everything in place. And that was to be embroidered as well, probably to match, I would imagine, the color scheme of the ephod and, and all of that. So I hope you got the picture now. There's a patterned undercoat, which was linen, so probably would have not have been brightly colored. Probably a white color or, or an undyed color would be better. Covered by the blue robe that had the bells and the pomegranates at the bottom, which would have been held in place by an embroidered sash. He would have had a turban that had the gold plate that said holy to the Lord across the front. Then over all of that would have gone the the richly sewn ephod that would have been attached with the gold settings and and would have gone not along the sides, but along the front and the back. And over all that would have gone the breast piece that had the gemstones across the front. And those would have been attached with the gold chains and rings to the ephod. I just want us to notice again the specific commands of God related to worship. We are so obsessed with our own style when it comes to worship. That's not how I commune with God. That's not how I get into it. And there is a, there's some room for that. There is freedom and there's diversity in worship, but you must remember it's so not about you when you come to the presence of the Lord. You know, if we want to use the example of songs, you don't have to like the song. Are we singing about Jesus? Then it's worth given it up to him. These things were for beauty and for glory. A priest could not just wear anything. He was, remember, holy to the Lord. He would bear the guilt of the people as he offered sacrifices. And in some ways, you can see how the garments are are, are a miniature picture of the tabernacle itself. You have the linen coat underneath. Then you had the blue robe, which is like the holy place beneath the ephod and its gems, which is like the holy of holies. So remember, there was that sapphire plain that was beneath the the throne of the Lord when they saw him there. So in the same way, you've got the brilliant gemstones, and then beneath that, you've got the blue robe. And it's very possible that this is a walking picture of God's presence here. There are some that make more of this than I, I think is warranted, but it's at least worth meditating and thinking about. But it's good for us to remember that these priests were themselves sinners. And a fancy garment is not going to change all that. Haven't you found that to be true? On the contrary, Jesus, in 1 Peter 2.22, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Jesus Christ was entirely without sin, for he was God, very God. His righteousness is perfect. He truly is holy to the Lord. And even though he did not have any kind of form or appearance, Isaiah 53, that we should desire him, he in his very self had the righteousness that made him the mediator, the only mediator possible. These priests were anticipating the coming of the true priest who belonged there. They were there through ceremony, through ritual, through status, and they were anticipating the one who really deserved all of that. He bore our flesh to save us, but it's important to remember he was not touched by our sin, which made him really the only choice to save us. Verses 40 through 43, then we come to the end of the garments, and the next chapter will go much faster. Verse 40, for Aaron's sons, so we're moving on from the high priest now, moving on to the other priests, you shall make coats and sashes and caps. 
You shall make them for glory and beauty. Again. And you shall put them on Aaron your brother and on his sons with them, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. So the other priests, it just says, have coats, so same kind of garments, like a tunic, sashes and caps uh, of linen, so probably of a white, of a clean color, but nothing like the high priest. You knew exactly who was in charge when he walked into the room. And God makes it clear, no other garments were to be worn in his service, not ever. And the last thing he added was a linen undergarment, which was to ensure modesty in the sanctuary. Remember back in Exodus chapter 20, he was talking about the altars, that he said, you're not going to go upstairs to my altar because I don't want your nakedness to be exposed. Nakedness is not just an embarrassing cultural thing. Nakedness was what Adam and Eve realized, what, what, what caused them to realize that they had sinned, and God himself made them garments in the Garden of Eden. So he tells them you will have these undergarments from hip to thigh, very similar to what we wear now. And you know, we, we've got to go quicker. But there's so much to unpack here, but we also are priests to the world through Christ. Revelation 1.6 says that we are a kingdom of priests we represent the king to the world. This is the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. But it's important for us to remember that it is not our own righteousness that got us here. And if you want to serve in God's house and enter into God's sanctuary, you too need to be covered. Just like Adam and Eve needed to be covered. And the priests needed to be covered. And the only thing that can cover you is the righteousness of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was righteousness and he became sin so that we who were sin could become righteous. That's the covering that we need in order to be welcomed into heaven and into God's presence. We minister for God. I minister for God as I preach. You do as you love and as you serve and as you give and all of that. But only ever as an agent of Christ we do things in His name and for His sake because we have no covering of our own. And there is no other way to enter into God's presence other than the righteousness of Jesus. No other way. Just as the priests had no other option or alternative of how to approach God, we have no other option. It's a free gift, but the consequences for neglecting that gift are unthinkable. So these were the garments that the priests would wear. The Lord mentioned the ordination, and that's what we're going to read next in chapter 29. So let's read these first nine verses of chapter 29. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Remember, consecrate means to set apart. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with the oil. You shall make them of fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with a skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. 
You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So this is the ordination itself. This ceremony that he's describing will not take place until Leviticus chapter 8, but this is the pattern that they're going to follow. And if you've read in Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 3, maybe chapter 7 in the story of Joshua, the high priest that was dressed in filthy garments, there's a vision that Zechariah has of him being reclothed with all of the, the priestly garments, which is a callback to this passage here. Now, Aaron, up to this point, had been functioning like a priest. We've seen him. He's kind of a leader. He's a holy man for the people. But this is going to make it official. So they're there to come with unleavened bread in a basket, three kinds. as unleavened bread, loaves, unleavened bread cakes, and wafers. So those are just three different, different uh, foods that you would make with the same kind of unleavened bread. Also, a bull and two rams, which, of course, are male sheep. And they were to ceremonially wash themselves, although the language can't even indicate that Moses himself was to wash them. This would have been in the bronze laver that was before the tabernacle. We haven't seen the design for that. We'll see that next time. Then the garments would be put on. Aaron would be anointed with oil, which is a consistent picture of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Kings and priests and anybody of any kind of authority would be anointed with oil. And it says that your sons will be the priests after you. Although Nadab and Abihu are going to be struck dead in Numbers chapter 3 because they're going to, it says, offer strange fire to the Lord. And what we think it happened there is they were likely drunk in the presence of the Lord. So then you have the, the children Eliezer and Ithamar. Eliezer would be the next in line. And Eliezer's son Phineas would be the primary line because in Numbers chapter 25 he's going to He's going to actually execute sinners that are flagrantly sinning before the Lord and bringing a plague upon the people. And God's going to be like, finally, somebody that actually cares enough about my holiness and my people to step in and do something. Then in Ezekiel chapter 40, which is after the exile, hundreds of years later, the Lord will say that only the sons of Zadok are to be the high priest now. He says, because when everybody else in Israel, all the other priests and all the other Levites went after false gods, the sons of Zadok did not. So the, the last man who you had to be descended from in order to be a high priest was Zadok. Jesus Christ, though, as I said, is a higher priest with a greater ordination. He was not of Aaron's line. Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It was not a ceremony with oil and water that ordained Jesus as our priest. It was the will of God and the oil of the Holy Spirit himself. This is good for us to know. What made Jesus, the, gave him the right to be the high priest? Because the Lord said so. God said it. Your salvation was not wrought by you. Jesus did not force salvation upon his father. Some people try to spin it like the Old Testament God is mean, but it's a good thing we have Jesus because he's real nice. No. Ephesians chapter 1 says it was all the plan of the father before the foundation of the world. It was the will of Sovereign Lord that saved you. Nothing can change that. No ceremony can add to it or take away from it. It all comes back to His love. Just as this priesthood here was a promise of His love. I'm going to give you a way to stave off the penalty of sin until I send the real high priest who will make an end of sin for you. And he's not going to come from the line of Aaron. He, he's going to come 
from the line of David, he's going to be my son, and he's going to have that imperishable life, just as Melchizedek did. Let's keep going now. So that's what they would do. They would anoint them. They would dress them. And then in chapter, or verse 10, they're going to begin the sacrifices. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. So now we get to the sacrifices of this ceremony that is going to take place later in Leviticus, starting with the bull. It was to be killed. He says, take some of the blood, put it on the horns of the altar. Do you remember this? These were the four things that came up at the corners. It was seven and a half feet on each side. It says, put the blood on it and pour the rest of it out at the base. Remember, the altar would have been elevated so that they could have gotten underneath it to scrape out the ashes. It says, pour out the blood of the bull underneath it. And then he says, cut off the inner fat, cut off the long lobe of the liver. The liver, as you may know, has two lobes, a long one and a short one. It says, cut off the long one and the kidneys as well. And those are going to be burned up on the altar. So the first thing burned on the altar was the ordination of the priests. And all the undesirable pieces, everything else, the flesh and the entrails, burn it outside the camp. Why? This is what is called a sin offering. And we will discuss what this was in Leviticus. But for now, all you need to know, this was to pay for the sins of the priests. So before they can be ordained, they would cover their sins. The bull would, in a sense, bear the sins and it was not to be eaten. It was to be killed outside of the camp or burned outside the camp, I should say. Then verse 15. Then you shall take one of the rams. Aaron and his sons shall lay their heads on the head of the ram. Can you see the symbolism there? They're putting their hands on his head. You shall kill the ram, take its blood, and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. So they lay their hands on its head. They'd kill this ram. This time they throw the blood against the sides of the altar. So now you've got it on the horns, on the sides, underneath, and of course on the top where the animals themselves would have been burned. And then he says, wash it, clean it of all filth. If you've ever been hunting, if you've ever field dressed an animal, an animal before, you know that it's, it's gross inside. It's disgusting. So he says, wash it all off so that it's clean. Then place the whole thing on the altar, and burn up the whole thing. This is what is called in the Bible a whole burnt offering. And this is usually what we think. When we think of a sacrifice, we think just setting it on fire. Most of them would have been actually eaten. Most of the pieces would have been eaten. But a whole burnt offering, you're giving it all over to the Lord. And so in this ceremony, this in a way represents the Lord's portion of the meal, that God is sharing in communion with them, and they're giving one ram to the Lord. Because we'll see with the second one, verse 19. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram, take part of its blood, put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and the tips of the right ears of his sons, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar, and of the anointing oil, sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. 
You shall also take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails, the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, keep an eye on that now, and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. So one of each kind that God told them to make. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. Yeah, so they're going to throw the blood on the altar, except for some of it, which would go on the ear, go on the thumb, and on the big toe of the right foot. So this is kind of like that song we sang in Sunday school, Be Careful Little Feet Where You Go, right? This is to anoint what they hear, the thoughts, what they do, and where they go. This is the symbolism of, of the blood that is there. Some of the blood and the oil would have been sprinkled on the garments in order to sanctify them and make them holy. And you take the same portions as before, any of the fatty bits, which of course you wouldn't eat anyway, and you're going to take a thigh, which we'll explain why in a minute, and you're going to take three pieces of unleavened bread. All the priests would take them in their hands and wave them before the Lord. And that means just like what it sounds, waving it up and down. I'm sure they were praying or singing at this point. And then those would be burnt on the altar. This was their ceremonial first offering that they offered. So this is their, their ceremonial first time putting something on the altar. A very significant moment. Verse 26. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination. So we didn't burn or sacrifice the whole ram. We've still got the rest of the carcass here. Take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination. Wave it for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be your portion, Moses. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved. And the other thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his son's. It shall be for Aaron and his sons a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. So continuing with this ceremony here, they would cut off the breast meat. Of the, of the ram, this is for Moses, because Moses was a, a prophet, but not exactly like a priest, but he's still participating here. The other thigh, and he says, you're going to ordain these, and they will be a contribution. What is he saying? He says, this is how the priests are going to get their food. That when someone brings a peace offering to the Lord, which is a, a specific kind of offering, the thighs of the rams would be given to the priests to eat in order to support their families. So even from the very beginning, the Lord provided for those who were in his service full time. That continues in the New Testament. Then all of the rest of the meat was boiled. It was eaten by the priests with the remaining bread from that basket to seal the ceremony. So the Lord, in a sense, had his portion with the whole burnt offering. They offered their sacrifice for the first time, and then they ate the rest of it. And of course, there was the bull at the beginning, which was to cover their sins. And whatever was left, of course, the bones and things like that would have been burned. 
So that's your ceremony. Hopefully you've, you've got an idea of what this was. The bull was to cover their sins. The first ram was for the Lord. The second was so that they could offer their first offering and then participate in the rest of it. Verse 35. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whoever touches the altar shall become holy. This ceremony, as we saw in verse 30, was to go for seven days. So they would do the rams on, on the first day, and then every day after that for seven days they would offer another bull. And this ceremony would have been repeated as needed throughout the centuries when a priest would die or a new one would be ordained. So this would have been repeated more than just once. Every day another bull. The altar, every time there was a new priest, was to be cleaned and anointed afresh because the altar was a holy thing. And if anybody new is going to be able to offer sacrifices on it, then God says we're going to consecrate it afresh so that this person will be holy to offer sacrifices. And I really, truly don't have time to get into it, but the ordination of our high priest was a much more gruesome scene than this, for it wasn't a bull or a ram that was sacrificed, but it was his very own self at the cross. Jesus sacrificed his flesh and his blood willingly. He was beaten, he was nailed to the tree, and he was finally killed there so that he could be our effective high priest. Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12 say, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. One sacrifice was enough for Jesus. It was the sacrifice of his own eternal blood. And there will never be another because he endures forever and his sacrifice covers all. Because he was man, he could die for men. But because he was God, he could die for all men. And his blood has wonder-working power, as we say. This is why we don't ordain priests today to make sacrifices. Because we only have one priest and one sacrifice, and that's all we need. So if you've ever felt the need that you've got to go get saved again, just remember, his blood is enough. And one time was enough. I know we've got to go fast, so let's finish the chapter, verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer it with a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Wow. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the Lord lays out here the daily routine of the priest, the morning and evening sacrifices. The psalmist sometimes will refer to that, the morning and evening sacrifice. This would have been a one-year-old lamb, one in the morning, one in the evening, 
Each one would have flour and oil offered on the altar and wine for a drink offering. Now, a drink offering in the Bible would be poured out on the ground. It wouldn't be burned on the altar. It would be poured out. Paul later would say, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Do you remember that? And God says, if you do this, I'll be in the midst of your people. I'm going to consecrate it all by my glory. Every morning and every evening as you come. And this, of course, would have only been the, the foundation. There would have been other sacrifices to make, other business for the priest to handle. Just as our Lord has offered one sacrifice, he has ongoing work that he does. Hebrews 7, verses 25 and 26 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's an intercessor. Jesus stands in the gap for you and me. He stands before God perpetually on your behalf. He offers his blood to save you when you first believe. And when you put your faith in Christ, his blood sacrifice counts for you. That's the first act of intercession. And then he stands daily as your advocate against Satan's ongoing accusations. Because Satan wants to bring up all the guilt that you have. And Jesus reminds the Lord, his father, of the blood that he has shed. And stands and defends you against your adversary. He leads the church in its mission. He directs the prayers and the activity of the church to save souls and to save the lost. Giving us gifts, making us like him. And he intercedes also forth for your daily life and needs. Jesus cares about you. He wants you to be well. He cares about the details and minutia of your life. And he knows exactly what you need. And all of this is only possible by the consistent, ongoing intercession of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. That is, not a priest by the flesh, but by the promise of God, and by the sacrifice of the cross and the miracle of the empty tomb. What do we learn from this today? Don't rely on anybody or any ceremony to save you. There's only one priest now, and it's Jesus. Every promise of the old covenant, as miraculous and beautiful as it was, could only find its fulfillment in his perpetual priesthood.